Welcome to the Why It Depends podcast, where we explore anatomical and physiological mechanisms and nuances behind different approaches in the fitness and therapy industries. In today's episode, Stefan and I discuss the beauty and complexity of rhythms within the human body, why they may exist, and their absolute importance for health and performance. We dive into the circadian rhythm, neural rhythms, circulatory rhythms, rhythms and movement and gait, cortically driven versus subcortically driven movements, as well as the importance of maintaining rhythm in your approaches to assessment and treatment, whether you are a manual practitioner or a strength and conditioning coach attempting to improve your patient or athlete's rhythm and movement. We hope you enjoy the show. Stefan, buddy, how the heck are you doing? Hey, yo, hey. How's it going? I'm good, man. I'm good, I'm good. It's been, a lo- it's been some time. It's been, it's been some time indeed. I've been missing you and you're in that Time to get back at it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you make you, me blush. <laughs> are you ready? Are you ready? I got my kalimba today. Oh, yes. Fun facts and bell facts with Stefan and Zach. <laughs> uh, we got to You got to hit the studio with that. Yeah, I know. I got the mic and everything. Why not? Right. <laughs> quit my profession. Quit my day job. Uh, amazing. Uh, my health act today is going on uh, par with what we're talking about. So um, light cardiovascular exercise in the morning upon waking for about 20 to 30 minutes, uh, or 20 to 40 minutes rather. So when I say light, I mean, walking or a light jog. Uh, so, and this is going to increase, uh, your sleep wake cycles or your circadian rhythm. So what happens is when we wake up in the morning, our cortisol peaks, and this kind of increases our heart rate, increases our blood pressure, um, increases blood sugar to, uh, to provide for energy. So if we walk in the morning time and it's not uh, excessive where we're excessively increasing cortisol, like uh, like a high intensity workout, for example, what this does is it optimizes that circadian rhythm of cortisol in the morning from our uh, anterior pituitary uh, signaling to our uh, adrenal cortex, which is cortisol, um, optimizing that in the morning. And then what that does is it optimizes the pineal gland's ability to uh, release melatonin in the afternoon, which can increase our uh, sleep quality and quantity. So this study thought it was mostly because of the blood pressure. So uh, what they call diurnal blood pressure. So which reduces stress on the cardiovascular system in the morning, which improves blood pressure in the afternoon and at night. But I, I, I do think it's more along the lines of this um, uh, circadian rhythm optimization of the endocrine release. It's just a little walk that's, in the morning. Yeah, That's super cool. Mm-hmm. So it, it helps then to, to sort of get you step established and, and set your day up in, in, in terms of like a healthy blood pressure later in the day is just by, by doing that. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think a lot of this has to do with routine too. So if, right. you, if you talk to anybody who's trying to get you to optimize your sleep, a lot of the times they'll talk about trying to wake up and go to bed at the same time every single day. Um, so that, that uh, rhythmicity of our endocrine system's ability to uh, produce cortisol in the morning and melatonin at night becomes more consistent. Um, so when we're getting up at the same times every day, doing a, a similar light exercise in the morning, maybe you're out in the sun and you're getting that blue, uh, natural blue light, which is also going to help optimize that cortisol melatonin relationship. So I think there's a lot of cool things that could be going on there. Hmm. That's wild. Very cool. Uh-huh. Um, and for my fun fact, uh, we're going to space. So the, uh, so thinking of the earth and the planetary uh, bodies and uh, rotating around the sun, earth sort of spins around the sun, creating then the, the um, uh, like, a, like a circular movement. But the sun itself, as it is moving through space in a linear direction, the, 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 
path of travel of the planet of planet earth and all other planets then forms this almost spiral as it's sort of circulating but then moving forward or relatively forward um, and if you were to take that three-dimensional spiral and imprint it on a two-dimensional way, um, what you end up getting is this undulating pattern of like a sine wave, sort of up, down, peaks and valleys um, uh, in, in its motion. Um, and as we're going to discuss in, in terms of rhythms, uh, rhythms in nature, rhythms in the human body, those are essentially fundamental for the expression of life and of of all things that, that you can sort of think of, there's an on off or increase in pressure, decrease in pressure. There's, you know, whether it's weather, breathing, uh, blood flow, muscle activity, uh, hormonal, uh, releases and, and things like that. It's all, it's all sort of done in these, these, uh, uh, well organized and maintained rhythms, um, which is very interesting. So hopefully this will be one of, of several, uh, rhythm, rhythm podcasts as we sort of dive in and, 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 uh, get into some cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like Stefan was saying, there's a lot of different avenues we could take here. There's a lot yeah. of different uh, systems and even um, coordinations through systems that go off of this uh, rhythmic kind of uh, interrelationship with each other. And it's interesting that um, the example of space that has that sinusoidal rhythm, and that's what we see a lot through these rhythms that we're seeing in the body as well. So just generally, like uh, the definition that I could find of a rhythm uh, is a cyclical natural phenomenon, which is you know, pretty broad, but I think kind of envelops what we're trying to talk about here today. Yeah. So, yeah. So where should we start? What rhythm should we start with? Just the establishment of rhythms. Like why, why are there rhythms? Like, you know, all, all of that sort of stuff. Why do we find rhythms within ourselves, within, within plant, plant life, within, you know, humans and animals and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought this was a super interesting question. Um, and, and what I think about is how we've evolved as species and how all kind of species evolves is reading, reacting to the environment. Mm-hmm. And what Stefan described in this, like, uh, uh, I don't even know what you'd call it, the space rhythm that uh, the planet and the sun and the stars are going through, but we can even see rhythms in the environment that we have here today. You know, seasonal rhythms, daily rhythms, like the circadian rhythm, uh, yearly rhythms, all these types of rhythms that our body has had to adapt to and optimize for survival. Super crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's just like... <clears throat> Yeah, like through through the years of of uh, of evolution and all that sort of stuff, there's been that constant uh, presence of 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 light and dark and on and off sort of sort of activity in terms of like cellular uh, uh, production and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. from plants uh, and photosynthesis to then you know changing and 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 uh, evolving into all the other creatures that that walk walk the planet and us in, included. So there's no separation there, which is always an interesting thing. And the, the circadian rhythm and the secretions then that are, are, are sort of coupled to, to that, like where you're saying with cortisol and melatonin and all that stuff, mm-hmm. those are very base level or very um, widely used uh, hormones mm-hmm. and, and have greater effect on uh, a great effect on all sorts of different systems in, in terms of digest, digestion, um, like uh, cognitive uh, states and, and all sorts of things like that. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it all follows, follows the sun. Yeah, exactly. And I think the circadian rhythm is such a great example, and it's generally described through the endocrinology. So like mm-hmm. I was talking about um, in the morning when uh, around 6 a.m., but it's going to be dependent on your own sleep-wake cycle because you can train this and, and change this. Anybody who's had to travel to different countries with different time zones knows this. Um, but mm-hmm. in the morning when uh, we start to receive 
uh, light and our body temperature increases. The hypothalamus really will release a hormone, which goes to the anterior pituitary to release uh, adrenocorticotropin hormone, and then to the adrenal cortex to release cortisol. And what that does is it increases our blood pressure, increases our heart rate, increases um, essentially catabolism. So the ability mm-hmm. for the body to release energy to, to be you know ready for the day. And then this kind of works off of a 12 hour cycle to where around 6 PM, the body slowly starts to decrease its cortisol. Testosterone starts to decrease. Um, and the pineal gland starts to release melatonin, which kind of does the opposite, reduces catabolism and more uh, leads us to more anabolism. So where we're recovering and rebuilding structures in the body, um, towards the nighttime while we're sleeping, which is, you know, super, super cool. But I think the interesting thing with this too, is the idea of how endocrinology uh, really does a good job at displaying why we may have these rhythms. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, there's all these different types of uh, hormonal axes, like the HPA one I just described, HBG. Uh, we did that podcast with you now when we were talking about menstrual cycles, um, yeah. all, a, whole, a whole host of different uh, or endocrine uh, cycles. And I think where this comes from is the uh, prevalence of negative feedback loops that these run off of. So essentially mm-hmm. what a negative feedback loop is, is when the product of a reaction decreases the, uh, that reaction. So let's say for that example, we just have hypothalamus, anterior pituitary, adrenal cortex are, are all working together to produce cortisol. But the more cortisol that we have in the body is inhibitory to the hypothalamus to then decrease cortisol. And then when there's mm-hmm. less cortisol, it excites the hypothalamus to then increase cortisol. And it builds this, like you said, that sinusoidal uh, relationship throughout the body, which is super, super cool. Yeah, it is. It's, it's so simple. Um, it's so simple to the point where I think the significance is, is often sort of missed or not, not fully appreciated the you know, the ubiquitous nature of, of that presence of that, that, that sort of undulating wave, uh, in, in its pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's super cool. And, and I mean, like when you're, you're talking about that, it can be, you know, uh, uh about the endocrine system, there's, you know, similar, uh, waves and, and patterns within like our electrical systems and in, in the central nervous system. Um, you know, the, the representation of different, um, states of mind, like whether, whether you're sleeping or awake or somewhere in between it's reflected in the electrical activity of the brain, uh, through, through different, uh, different, um, frequencies and, and, um, and magnitudes or amplitudes of electrical activity, which then stimulate different areas of the brain as they're receiving then that electrical activity in different ways. And, Mm -hmm. and with that then comes all sorts of different, (coughs) excuse me, different, opportunities for cognition for uh you know restorative sleep um you know and, and things things like that so uh, it's all it's all i guess sort of through the interpretation of light which is crazy when you think about it <laughs> yeah yeah exactly in the circadian rhythm that's what they describe as, as the major factors is light and temperature um yeah. which if we look at how the body interacts with its environment is kind of electrical chemical uh, mechanical and thermal yeah. Yeah. And that's how it reacts with its own internal environment. It's just find, so simple. So simple. And that, uh, there, there is two positive feedback loops, which I find yeah. very, very interesting too. So a positive feedback loop is when the product of a reaction actually increases, uh, the rate of reaction. So, uh, the example that comes to mind is, um, childbirth. So mm-hmm. as the, uh, uterus starts to contract, it stimulates the, uh, I believe it's the posterior, uh, pituitary, um, would still be the hypothalamus, but the posterior pituitary to release uh, uh, oxytocin, which then increases the, uh, the amount of contraction so that the, the child can be born. 
Um, and w- which confused me at first, because then how does some system like that regulate itself? Um, yeah. And it, it really, really confused me. But if you think about it, at some point, that system is going to fatigue. And then again, have to come down for that recovery period or refractory period or whatever you want to call it, and then come back to, to normal. So yeah, there's always yeah. ways. And I think it's interesting when you start talking about the neurology, to me, that that's a similar way in which how it augments itself is through kind of fatigue. So mm-hmm. when it runs out or close to out of the uh, products that it needs to create uh, impulses, then mm-hmm. it kind of re-regulates and comes back to, to normal. Yeah. It's a great segue into the next rhythm. Yeah. That I was wanted to talk about with that because when you, you're talking about the neural activity, what what we're talking about is a product of exchange of, of sodium potassium ions in, that are you know present and adjacent to the, the nerve cell, and with with a given magnitude of of exchange of those physical ions, then you have a, a, like a depolarization and an end plate sort of uh, potential that's achieved to then cause muscular stimulation and and, and contraction. Um, and the, the, the guy, what's his name? Uh, Sir Bernard Katz. Uh, I was reading, a um, uh, a speech that he was given. He was sort of the, one of the prominent figures that, that, uh, investigated this, um, back in the late sixties and seventies. Um, and he was talking about like the, the, you know, the end plate potential and, and the action potential, you know, achieving like 50, um, millivolt, um, stimulation to then uh, cause a a muscular contraction. But part of what he, in, in his speech, what he found in in his research was that there was sort of like a random um, uh, action potential that was on a completely different scale of amplitude at uh, So it normally is like 50 millivolts. And what he found was there was a a similar existing one at 0.5 millivolts. And uh, you know, nature doesn't do anything without reason, nor does anything occur in the human body without reason or purpose. And so it sort of made me wonder what and why may that exist. And, and I, you know, I haven't done the necessary research, but I would, I would like to guess that the, the, the physical presence of those ions and their proximity to where they need to be to facilitate an action potential and exchange of, of sodium going into the cell and potassium leaving the cell, that, that small low-lying level of neural activity would draw in and maintain the proximity of those ions. And if that low-lying level of activity wasn't present, then those ions would naturally diffuse inward to the cell and outward away from the cell to the point where, you know, that, that amount of, of uh, action potential may not be to, able to be achieved if, uh, if a big signal were to be sent to that nerve. So there, there's sort of, you know, in my mind anyways, it makes sense that there would be this, uh, this sort of undulating and regular low levels of activity to maintain the, the proximity of those ions for use when there is a signal that that is going to be achieving an action potential and purpose in the muscle. Um, so it's kind cool. of a, yeah, yeah. Essentially Just, maintain the position, like the optimal position. Yeah. To keep them all sort of culled in an area where they need to be, as opposed to evenly dispersed and diffused uh, through like the intracellular fluids or the extracellular fluid. Because once that, that happens, then, you know, you may not have enough and, you know, maybe I just don't know enough about, uh, which is entirely likely about all the, <laughs> about all the neurophysiology stuff. But, um, you know, when you have a disproportionate amount of, of, or like a concentration gradient, essentially there, there's a maintenance there that needs to be held. Mm. That's, that's very interesting. Uh, what it reminds me of, and again, I might be completely off on this, but uh, yeah. post, post-atonic potentiation. 
So when yeah. you fire a muscle, um, it increases the, whoops, the ability or rate at which it could fire again. Yeah, so again, yeah. potentially setting up a better position for those uh, ions to be able to diffuse across to create that impulse towards the muscle. Yeah. It's very interesting. <clears throat> Absolutely. Mm. And it's just like one of those things, it's, you know, so it exists, there's rhythms within rhythms. It's, you know, there's the waves of the ocean, but then ripples across the water. It's all sort of the, the you know, the same, but just at different, different magnitudes. Mm -hmm. um, that exist, which is a really cool thing to see in, in, in something as, as, uh, uh, you know, microscopic as, as an ion passing uh, across the nerve membrane. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and you see that with the circulatory system too, uh, like our venous and lymphatic drainage, I think the lymphatic, especially because it's such a low pressure system, um, mm -hmm. and doesn't have a lot of, uh, uh, smooth muscle within its, uh, the walls of the vessels requires yeah. muscle activation. Um, to help pump. I think it's like one third of uh, lymphatic drainage comes from movement from muscles kind of squeezing like sponges to create pressure to um, bring fluid back towards the heart. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, when we're sleeping, we're not really moving that much. We talked about a podcast before that there is this kind of oscillating rhythm, rhythm of muscle activity while we sleep to, uh, to essentially keep fluid moving. Like as we go through REM, deep sleep, non-REM, kind of like there's more active movement as we come into out of uh, like into a lighter sleep. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I can kind of see that uh, that impulse that you're describing. If it is enough to create any uh, stimulus at the end plate, just from a tissue uh, perspective, a circulatory uh, perspective to allow for some pumping. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's great enough because there's a resting membrane potential of the, the, uh, the muscular tissue that it's um, impulsing, right? So I don't know if that... 0.5 is enough to create a, a twitch of any sort, but yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe even of just like you're talking about of the fluid within the nerve tube. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Super cool. It is. And, and I mean, like at, at night and, and when you're sleeping, like that's when, you know, a lot of that healing and, and uh, occurs and a lot of fluid drainage needs to occur from the, the cerebral spinous fluid. And uh, a lot of that sort of regeneration, especially if you're, you know, what you were talking about neural fatigue earlier, Mm -hmm. that's when all that restoration sort of occurs mm -hmm. is at night while you're sleeping, you have that nice low lying sort of subtle, easy going kind of, uh, kind of rhythms through the body. Mm -hmm. and, and as much as we're not maybe creating compression, there's a level of distraction between tissues because now fluid's able to diffuse out of, um, tissues that were maybe been compressed all day, like the, the, um, nucleus pulses of the discs and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's cool that you brought up the cerebral spinous fluid because there, uh, there were some research papers that, uh, you, uh, Stefan sent me for the listeners that, uh, was super interesting in terms of respiration, which we talked about having a rhythm, yeah. a rhythm that coordinates with, um, contractions of the heart and yeah. apparently a rhythm that also coordinates with the drainage and supply of cerebral spinous fluid in the brain, uh, which I found was super interesting because it, again, the diaphragm, uh, respiratory diaphragm being a muscle that is within the thoracic cavity, we, we know it has an influence on digestion. We know it has an influence on fluid movement as well, because if it changes pressure to allow for air to move in and out, it has to change pressure to allow for fluid to move in and out uh, of different structures. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't think, you wouldn't think it would go all the way up into the, uh, you know what I mean? Into the brain yeah. and into, uh, into those structures, but it does. Yeah. And that was the fun fact from, from a little while ago was, was that like how you're breathing or no, it was your heart rate, the pulsations of your heart rate and systole and diastole then also affects then the, the movement of the optic nerve to then mm allow it to secrete nitric oxide and, and facilitate its own blood supply. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's just insane. It's insane that it, that, like you said, like that the diaphragm passes, uh, you know, and is able to transmit pressure, uh, you know, and, and affect then things like in the brain, but 
yeah, when you you look at at, at it structurally, it, it sort of it, it checks out, you know. Yeah. As you as you breathe in, you, the ribs extend uh, and inhale and move and and move you into an extended position, and with that, then comes a lengthening of the spine, and and it's through inspiration that is the primary driver of that CSF uh, of uh, CSF exchange in in, in the, the brain, and so mm-hmm. um, the the it's just all it's all mechanics mm-hmm. when you like- at the, the end of the day. Yeah, the diaphragm attaches to the lumbar spine, L1 to 3, it attaches to the to the to the ribs. The ribs attach into the thoracic spine, right? Yeah. Thoracic spine uh attaches in through so many different connective tissues into like the, if we think of even just the um the meninges coming yeah. through the spinal cord to create yeah. all through like the um tutorial follicles, the tentorial um diaphragm and all those um soft tissue structures that are kind of wedged in between central nervous system structures in the brain. Yeah. creating pulls and compression tension relationships to help, you know, move fluid in and out. Um, and just yeah. for, for those who don't know, it's like the cerebrospinous fluid is essentially uh, the fluid that surrounds the brain is in the spinal cord. Um, it comes from the choroid plexus and the ventricles, and it, it does have a nutritive quality to it. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, in one of the studies, it was talking about how uh, um, respiration is uh, correlated with memory. So they, yeah. they did, which is crazy. So they did a study where they looked at, uh, how people, how well, uh, people could, um, remember an image and they yeah. found that people could remember images better on the inhalation and not as good on the exhalation. And it was only applicable to the nose, uh, not so much, uh, through the mouth, which means there must be, um, a, a either a mechanical difference, which we have talked about in previous podcasts, but also, yeah. um, a sensory difference because we have the olfactory bulb. Uh, that comes in for, you know, sensing different smells yes. and uh, there's relationships with that to the hippocampus and the pressure relationships that, you know, drain and can supply for uh cerebrospinous fluid in the brain. And like, that's just so insane. Like I, I remember reading that, like, it seems like that is a stretch in itself of like, you know, linking uh, your respiratory rhythm with then your, your ability to recall and, 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 uh, remember certain things, but, you know, it sort of goes back then to brain, uh, brain waves and, and the, the undulation and frequencies within that, mm-hmm. um, you know, each, each one is, you know, has different abilities, uh, or, or allows for, I don't know how to say this correctly, but, but allows different qualities to be expressed more, more effectively essentially, mm-hmm. or have a, a more of a dominance, and uh, that memory and recall, you know, with uh, with with the breathing and, and the exchange of fluid, you know, of, of CSF shows that the nutritive quality of that must be allowing for all sorts of uh, all sorts of things that it may not be <laughs> on the exhale, apparently, which is kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. So next time you're studying your uh, anatomy, yeah, just uh, flash only, inhale. just only inhales. Yeah. <laughs> Hold your breath. Inhales only. Yeah. Uh, such a yeah. wild relationship. It is. And, and yeah. who, who knows if uh, like my guess is we're wrong and the way we're describing this relationship, that's probably sure, totally yeah. different. Or there's thousands of different other explanations of how this nuances. Yeah. But it's there. Yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's a very interesting sort of and, and complex and inter interlinked system that, that yeah, you just have to give credit to it's, it's very interesting and, and endless, you know, when you start to, to unravel some of these, some of these ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, another one I wanted to get into was the gate cycle, Yeah, which is also a rhythm. Yeah. Um, very much so. So I, you were kind of describing how it is like uh, sinusoidal. If uh, yeah. you're just looking at the center of mass, 
doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't matter which plane you're looking at if you're looking at a person walking from the side if you if they're walk if they're not dysfunctional but uh, if they're yeah. walking from the front or if they're you know if you're looking at a bird's eye view you'll see this undulating pattern of yeah you know, of like either a side to side sway if they're stepping from the left foot to the right foot or or you know if they're walking and you're looking at them from the side you can see a sort of elevation as they're standing on their foot and then as they're bridging to to take a step onto the next and that heel strike there's sort of a Dip, a dip in their their sort of height overall and it, again you know like you said as long as there's nothing nothing wrong there should be a nice sinusoidal sort of pattern going through the, the rhythm of their their gait mm-hmm. uh, and and i think that it would be a really interesting i'm sure i'm sure people are, are using it in some capacity as a method of uh of, of like uh, assessment in, in some some way shape or form but mm-hmm. it's just uh it's another interesting expression of uh of, of these patterns, you know, as they exist in, uh, in movement and, and in the body. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and with that, you know, the, the, the undulating pressure that is achieved through a step versus, you know, an air, a leg that's just floating through the air and then contact and, and, you know, increased pressure there. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember, were you talking, were oh, you yeah. when I was telling me about that? Yeah. What was that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that was a while ago. Yeah, in my physiology uh, course, uh, my osteopathic physiology course, our teacher brought this study up and I thought it was absolutely wild. So uh, like uh, Stefan was describing, whenever we uh, put a foot down and we create compression on a side, there's a level of muscle contraction that has to happen for us to you know, propel ourselves forward. And what the heart will try and do is um, coordinate with our gait cycle. I think this was running, actually. It might not have been walking. I think it was running um, where there's a little right. bit more force of contraction. Uh, so mm-hmm. the heart will will um, coordinate with the, the muscle contraction. When we do, like we talked about with the, uh, when muscles contract, there's an increase in pressure, which helps pump fluid back towards the center of the, of the heart. So what the heart will do is when we, when there's foot contact and we're creating this compression and uh, muscles are contracting fluids, getting pumped back towards the heart and the heart will coordinate to be on diastole, which means it's right relaxation phase so that it can fill at that time. And yeah. then when we, uh, when we come off the ground and we, uh, decrease that compression the muscle relaxes, it'll, it'll yeah. uh, go into systole so that there isn't as much, um, I think it's called afterload. Uh, yeah. so there's not as much pressure that it has to, uh, push through, uh, uh to push fluid through. So it, it's optimizing the circulatory rhythm with the rhythm of our gait. That's crazy. It's just like maximum efficiency. Yeah. It's like when there's <laughs> the least amount of peripheral resistance, that's when it, 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 it contracts. And when there's maximum return through contraction of muscles, then it, it fills and relaxes. Mm-hmm. That's, that's so, that's so wild. Mm-hmm. Like it's, yeah, it's just crazy. And then there's the, I uh, forget now what the reflex is called, but with respiration, is it the Baxton's reflex or something like that? Where when, oh, we, I when, forgot. We, when we inhale and the uh, diaphragm pulls down on the pericardium of the heart and it kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, increases its space, uh, heart rate will increase so that it can pump uh, so it, uh, can pump more and then we'll yeah. decrease on the relaxing face. Um, so it, because it doesn't have, there's not as much pressure in the actual heart due to the, um, changes in its geometry from the diaphragm. So hundred yeah. Yeah. 100% that it, it coordinates around respiration as well. At the same time as gait, at the same time as posture, the same time as like the uh, ocular motor, uh, vestibular motor. Yeah. And the, and the brain uh, and the cerebral spinous fluid secretions. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah exactly. uh, it's crazy. Yeah. When you, when you try to think about it and put it all in and rationalize all of it together, it just doesn't make any sense. It's just like, it's too much. My mm-hmm. mind, mind explodes mm-hmm. <laughs> thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's pretty wild stuff. 
but I just love, uh, love, love learning about those sorts of, those sorts of relationships because, you know, it just gives, um, it gives like a, a, a really inspiring kind of perspective to how all that, that stuff kind of coordinates and works and, and intermingles with itself and, and gives those feedback loops and, and all that sort of stuff. It's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And it really, it really shows the, one of the like main principles or biggest principles of osteopathy is body's the dynamic unit of function. Yeah. So, you know, when somebody comes in with foot pain or shoulder pain or a headache, you can start to see how it might not be, you know, just a shoulder issue. It might not be just a foot issue. You can see how these, all these different systems have to coordinate around this, uh, this pathology. Yeah. And how maybe the cause of the pathology isn't exactly, uh, where the pain is coming from. Like I know, uh, Dr. A.T. Still, uh, one of his, uh, one of the funniest, um, cause we have a history class and learn a lot about the history of osteopathy. And one of the funniest stories that he had was, uh, he walked into a classroom, an osteopathic classroom back in, you know, the late 1800s, or early 1900s. And he had a cat in his hand and he walks to the front of the class <laughs> and he pulls on the tail of the cat and the cat meows really loud. You know, the cat runs away. And then he leaves. And that was the lesson for the day. And, you know, being explained afterwards, what he's saying is, you know, there's, there's a cause of the effects that we see. And, you know, the problem wasn't the cat's mouth, right. Making the noise. The problem was coming from somewhere else. And the effect was coming from a different area, right. It's how the body's trying to like have a conversation with the, with the individual. Okay. There is a problem. Yeah. Um, How it expresses. Figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. 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 yeah, Exactly. (laughs) And and I mean, I mean, speaking just about what we had, you know, previously, if you, you know, you got a headache, you know, it may not just be a neck issue. It may be a breathing rhythm issue. It may be a sleep issue. You know, it may be a drainage issue. You know, there's, there's so many different issues that, that, that any one symptom could be, um, could be related to. So, you know, understanding that dynamic unit as, and, and the structures and, and functions relating to it is just, uh, yeah, it's a crucial piece. Mm-hmm. And, and never ending piece at that. <laughs> yeah, and you could probably explain it a million different ways. And I think yeah. as, especially when you get physiology involved, like yeah. I find, um, I really appreciate what I really appreciate about osteopathy is we, we start from the anatomy. We start from the mechanical, how things move, because you can, I mean, palpation is, and my visual observation is relatively subjective, but it's objective to me. And I can work my way through the mechanics of trying to figure out what that problem is. But as soon as you bring physiology into it, like mm-hmm. we have a decent understanding of physiology, but I still think, you know, physiological mechanisms are in the infinite. So when yeah. you're trying to figure something out from just the physiological side, you can get stuck thinking about it infinite amount of ways. That's not to say it's not important to, to understand those mechanisms and those relationships as much as they are understood today. But I just mm-hmm. find, you know, that the mechanical side of things is a little bit more, at least for me, objective. Like I, I can see, okay, you know what, they have, you know, a rotation through their thorax and then a sideband rotation in their cervicals and okay, now they have headaches, right? So I, I can kind of piece my way through that, get rid of the rotations, get rid of the sidebends, does it go away? But I'm not gonna be able to piece, yeah. like even just this conversation of cere- cerebral spinous fluid and, you know, yeah, respiration yeah, yeah. and circulatory uh, rhythm. I'm not going to be able over to piece heads my way. immediately. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to piece my way through that problem without having no. some sort of framework to to build an understanding from. Yeah, and I, I mean, like speaking to the framework, like that's absolutely what it is. Like you're you are a framework for your physiology, and the two of them are just so intricately, you know, connected. There, you know, as as one expresses differently, it will change the expression of the other, mm. and uh, and you got to then you know figure out what do you have at your hands to be able to control and, and, and modulate or, or influence 
and uh, and then you know trust that the 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 interlinking nature of the two will will take care of each other. Mm-hmm. And that that, ladies and gentlemen, is nature right yeah. there. God damn, <laughs> love it. Yeah. Uh, and something I want to talk about too with rhythms that I find uh, really interesting is if you can kind of grasp uh, what um, a healthy rhythm should be in a person, it's going to be a little bit different for everybody. You can yeah. really see a patho- uh, a pathology in um, creating a, an insult on the rhythm. So mm-hmm. if you saw someone walking with beautiful gait, good posture, everything's moving perfectly, right? You get flexion, extension, coxpomolar joints, anterior posterior rotation, blah, blah, blah. You go all the way up into uh, rotation, side bending, thorax, all the way up in the cervicals and the, and the upper limbs, you know what I mean? You can kind of see the fluidity and the, um, uh, I don't know, like the beauty in it, right? But as soon as you yeah. see uh, someone with a pathology in any such way, you notice it right away, right? In their gait. Yeah. Or even yourself, yeah. right? When when there's an issue with your circadian rhythm, you're gonna know. <laughs> you're waking mm-hmm. up at four a.m. or uh, uh, not being able to go to sleep until you know twelve, or whatever it is. As soon as the the rhythm is um, impact impacted pathologically, even and when I say pathologically, I don't mean just disease. It could be, you know, postural subclinical. Imbalances. Yeah, exactly. Subclinical. Yeah. That's a nice one. Yeah. You can notice it. You notice it right away. Totally. Right? dragging your feet your gait's not quite what it used to be tripping on the rug <laughs> yeah there's like their heads bobbing to the right side every yeah, step yeah, yeah. or whatever yeah. it is totally yeah. noticeable noticeable and like you said it can be used um uh really really well subclinically or clinically or yeah. depending on your profession yeah yeah totally mm-hmm. and an interesting example actually that i i got to enjoy was uh my my in-laws they got a, a, a little poodle and, um, when, once the, the, the little tiny puppy grew to, you know, its normal size, the, the fluidity of, of its spine, as it was walking, it was snake-like, it was just so fluid, so natural, so easy. It's rib cage moved separate from its pelvis. It was, you know, it's each legs were, were articulating well, and you could see all of that nice pattern and sinusoidal movement literally through its whole body. It's crazy. (laughs) And then, you know, my, my uh, brother and sister-in-law, they, they have a, an older German shepherd who poor thing ended up having an ACL injury and you could see, you know, the, the complete difference and, and the gait and the way in which it would sort of lean to one side and it wouldn't be able to swing, you know, the, 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 uh, bottom half of its body very well away from the, the upper half of its body. And, and it was just, just, disjointed to say, you know, in, in a simple term and, and it's just reflected, you know, and then you, you wondered, you know, them being no different to them yeah, as a mammal, no different relatively to us, if their mechanics are affected, it's going to change the physiology and, mm-hmm. you know, how, how long will that, that, uh, you know, those, those, uh, compensations be able to, uh, hide or, or be remedied, you know, away from any sort of issue, but, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's an interesting thought and, and cool to see it in action yeah. between the two, you know, yeah. just getting, like, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you just get old and decrepit. And I feel like that's, that's <laughs> going to be all of us in, in a short amount of time. Yeah, you lose your rhythm <laughs> and you die. Yeah. 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 Um, but like you're saying, yeah, like the, the rhythm is almost aesthetically pleasing to watch, right? It's just like it so fluent or if you see like a really good dancer or something like yeah. that, or something really skillful and some sort of um, uh, physical or movement based skill, it's, it's very pleasing to kind of watch and then you again i still think um for me personally like the the anatomical or the mechanical um loss of rhythmicity is kind of easier to see than potentially the physiological uh changes because um when you have a patient or a client you're from the physiological side unless you're doing blood work regularly Mm -hmm. and you can see changes in rhythm there you're kind of going based off of their uh, subjective complaints 
Yeah. Um, but, but that's not to say those aren't useful. It's like, Oh, how often do you usually defecate a day? Oh, I usually go twice a day. Uh, but for the last two weeks, I haven't gone once. Okay. There's a, there's a, there's a change in rhythm there that we're going to have to yeah, figure yeah, out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, Shocker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's something going on for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Again, they, they lost their cyclic rhythm. Yeah, totally. Um, it's it's so, wild. Yeah. You know, it's just the, the, the infinite measure of health I feel is just like that, that, that undulating rhythm and, and, and the improvement and, uh, uh, you know, of a, of a, a bad rhythm essentially is, is going to lead you to a better, better state to be in regardless of what system you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, or even what, what, uh, what organism you're talking about even. I got that. Kind of I got a cool one actually for you that just came to my mind. Um, yeah. I've got a relatively new mentor, a uh, very, very, very uh, smart strength and conditioning coach, but he was talking to me about different types of athletes. So you can yeah. see kind of force dominant athletes and velocity dominant athletes, as well as like we were talking about kind of aesthetically pleasing uh, movement based mm-hmm. athletes and athletes who you can tell um, are like more stiff, right? Their movements don't look as smooth and as rhythmical. Yeah. And, you know, like potential reasons for that and how he explained it was, um, again, this is more of a physiological explanation to a degree, but yeah. the difference between athletes who utilize, uh, cortical movements versus subcortical movements. So someone uh. who's very cortically driven. So, uh, in terms of, um, this gets way over my head, but <clears throat> the frontal cortex. So whenever you're thinking very heavily about a movement, maybe it's something you've done. Uh, this is your very first time. You have to think a lot about it. That would be yeah. uh, cortically driven. So you're not necessarily reading and reacting very much. Yeah. You're, you're, uh, executing a movement through, uh, intentional thought. So very voluntary yeah. to a degree. And then yeah. somebody who, you know, is very fluent or becomes very skilled at a movement or is just naturally kind of very good at reading, reacting is more subcortically driven. So if we, uh, look at our cerebellum and brainstem and the basal ganglia and their influences on movement is very much, uh, read and react based. So the somatosensory mm-hmm. information coming in from joints and muscle tissues and visceral tissues and all that stuff. They're very good at almost being able to turn, maybe this isn't the best way to say it, but the thinking off. And then it's just, it's just fluent, right? They can feel it. They're moving very well. Um, and you, yeah. can, you can see a cortical driven athlete kind of become more subcortically driven as they get more comfortable with movement. Yeah. But, um, it's interesting to see they almost have this inherent uh, ability to rhythm, like picture these people, you know, who just like are naturally really good dancers, naturally really good uh, sprinters or like really good at hurdles or yeah. really skilled movement sports where it's yeah. like, like the elasticity of the muscles, they can create muscle slack and relax really easily. And then come through with uh, forceful contractions, um, maybe more uh, velocity dominant athletes. I yeah. That was just super. It's just, yeah. And, and that, that reminds me, like I, I was listening to podcasts way, way back when, and I think it was, uh, Dan, John, who ended up saying like, if it's not, if it doesn't look athletic, it probably isn't athletic. And if it looks <laughs> athletic, then you're probably on the right track. And it was yeah. just like, that's nice. It's simple because mm-hmm. it is, it, you know, it's, it's such an interesting, um, and, and like subconscious kind of thing, like you practice, you know, perfect practice makes perfect. And as you start to that, to groove then those, those neural pools and get your coordination down, then all of a sudden the less thinking and, and the more automatic things become, it's, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. To, to witness. And, uh, something we talk about a lot, um, at least at the school we went to for, uh, osteopathic manual practice is rhythmicity in your treatment. So yeah. how, you, how you're coming, um, um, maybe that's not the best, how you're coming at a patient, but how, how you're facilitating your, your treatment and your assessment, the more mm-hmm. rhythm, uh, the more rhythmicity you have, the better read you're going to be able to get on those tissues and those joint, uh, motions and preferences and restrictions. Um, yeah. and I think, I think this is because 
of the anticipatory nature uh, nature of uh, our uh, nervous system. So whenever mm-hmm. our nervous system can anticipate motions very well, I think it, uh, and, and knowing that it's um, not dangerous, it can let go and relax a little bit better as opposed to something that's not as rhythmic. Maybe it's choppy. Maybe it's uh, uh, really hard in the joint motion. Yeah, uncontrolled, right? Yeah. Just doesn't feel, uh, it has to anticipate a little bit more now. So now it's on guard. There's levels of increased voluntary tone decrease voluntary tone, et cetera, to almost try to control the movement so that it doesn't get to a, a place of danger. Um, yeah. And I've been trying to think about ways um, and having conversations with that mentor again, about ways, how, how we could train athletes in a way, maybe they're cortically driven to be more rhythmic in their motions. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, but kind of what he, what he had to say is uh, using more rhythmic mo- movements. Mm-hmm. So uh, more dynamic kind of up and down work, not as much heavy lifting, um, using metronomes or, or, uh, rhythmic oh, sounds, yeah. right. So say, okay, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to bring the knee up on, on the, on the first metronome. And then you're gonna bring down the second up, down, up, down. And that, to me, that always, that, that seemed very, uh, like osteopathic in a way, like you're, bringing, yeah. you're trying to bring rhythmicity into, into the movement. And you're integrating multiple systems for, for them to then cue, cue into as an athlete, like, okay, there's, there's a cue here and I'm going to coordinate to the, uh, to a cue is, is, you know, very effective mm. in terms of the training effect. And, and another piece too, is, um, uh, I know from, from previous readings and, and learnings from other, uh, like in the strength conditioning world is that, that idea of intrinsic versus extrinsic, um, cueing and, and the effects then that that has on, on this, on the nervous system's reflection of the muscle and muscle activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and when you give somebody an, uh, an intrinsic cue, something like, okay, feel this, you know, squeeze here or like really contract, it brings then their thought and their awareness internally. And it drives up, you know, things like, um, like, like muscular stiffness and, and stuff like that. But then it decreases then that fluidity of, of what you're, what you were describing earlier of that sort of natural flow. And as soon as you start to say, okay, instead of, you know, contracting your quads and your glutes and then driving your feet into the floor to push you up, just focus on getting your head into the ceiling. And then all of a sudden the body just with that directive, sorry, the brain with that directive is able to then coordinate with what it has available to make that, that the, the biggest uh, or most efficient effort mm-hmm. that it can based on what it's got. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so with that, then I'm sure it comes, yeah, it comes a little bit more fluidity and, and less thought when you're not, not working intrinsically and you're thinking extrinsically, mm-hmm. which is kind of fun. Mm-hmm. But that, too, that metronome idea is pretty sweet. That's yeah. Cool. That's awesome idea. Yeah. Um, I think too, like you're saying is not, not over cueing your athlete. Cause again, you're, yeah. you're, then now you're bringing the focus to more of that cortically driven movement as opposed to, yeah. you know, just kind of feel it. Let me see you do it first. Give me maybe one cue. Okay. Let's see it again. You got jazz music on or something, right? It's nice and loose. So I was thinking too, like, why? Why is an athlete more cortically driven versus um, subcortically driven? As I yeah. would explain, um, like, what about uh, there may be genetic factors where there's just more dominance in different brain tissues and stuff. Um, hmm. But what, like, what what about the 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 athlete who's a little bit more stiff? Like their inability to or not them, but their, their inability for their central nervous system to read the sensory information they're getting and then react mm. accordingly in an optimal way. And something uh, that I came across recently is with uh, sympathetic versus parasympathetic um, tone or expression, I should say, mm-hmm. um, which again is another rhythm in itself. But somebody who's more sympathetic is just going to have more muscle tone. 
So this happens to us throughout the day as well. So we're more sympathetic in the morning. You're going to have more muscle tone earlier in the day, as opposed to later in the day, as we become more parasympathetic before bed and the body starts to relax. So if yeah. they have an increase in uh, sympathetic tone and they just have more tone in the musculature um, mm -hmm. and the soft tissues, they, the somatosensory system through the you know muscle spindles, like all the mechanoreceptors are, mm -hmm. are not going to be able to read um, the, the, the movements that they're doing as well, because they're so stiff. That's cool. From that. So maybe if, if you can right. find ways, maybe you do some breathing activities before to try and bring some more parasympathetic activity. Maybe you do, um, uh, uh, osteopathic treatment or whatever, whatever, whatever treatment that you're doing to try and reduce muscle tone before, before exercise. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean, to try to decrease the tone and allow, uh, more, uh, um, more optimal sensory information to come back into those subcortical structures. Yeah. And, and I mean, like, like I'm sure major critique probably from people is like, you don't want to decrease muscle tone before exercise, but it's, yeah. so it's, you know, you're probably not like, like, that's probably like what, what we were saying earlier, like an incomplete like picture, there, there's just so much complexity going on. And it's not to say that you're decreasing muscular tone, but you're decreasing probably the inhibition of muscle tone in, in, in specific areas, which then likely would allow for more fluid, more coordinated movement as a result, mm -hmm. because doing things like, like mindful work, uh, mindfulness work, um, uh, or, or, um, pre-planning movements and all that sort of stuff mentally and, and going through that or doing breathing exercises has been shown to improve performance. Mm -hmm. And it's just one of those, you know, no brainers. It's just a question. Yeah. Like where, where are you going to put your priorities and, and, and your time and all that sort of stuff? Cause I think that that definitely has, has a place. Um, it's just probably, you know, hasn't been wide, as widely adopted as it probably should, should be. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. That's yeah. It's interesting. You bring that up. Like, why would you want to decrease muscle tone before I'm about to, you know, squat 300 pounds or whatever, whatever, whatever exercise you're doing. Um, I was listening to podcasts a long time ago. It just came to my mind of yeah. uh, athletes who get what they called pumped out. So, yeah. uh, for example, oh. um, this would only happen in some sports. Um, where you're relying on certain muscle groups uh, repetitively. So let's say a rock climber. Yeah. Um, at some point, and anybody who's been rock climbing has felt this where, where your forearms, like you just, you feel like you can't close and open your hand anymore. Right. Because yeah. th those muscle tissues have been so highly toned and um, stuck in contraction that uh, uh, the circulation out of those tissues is impaired because there's not the undulating tone. So yeah. when we talk about uh, muscles contracting to help increase pressure to push fluid out, that's great. But at the same time, you need the relaxation to pump new fluid in or, or depending on the, the orientation of the vessels we're talking about, it, it'll probably be some vessels emptying and, and uh, um, emptying and uh, filling and some contractions oh, and then the relaxation, some emptying, some filling, depending on that kind of like suction uh, increased pressure relationship or whatever, or the muscle fiber orientation from the, the vessel orientation. Yeah. So if, the, if you don't allow for enough uh, relaxation or decrease in muscle tone in between contractions, you're going to get to a point where the, the muscles metabolically just can't function anymore. Can't keep up. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the worst feeling. Cause you're, you're like going in, you feel like you're in good shape and then you just hit 10 minutes on, on a rock wall and you're like, I, I can't do this. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're going to the beach after and you want your biceps to be all pumped up. Yeah. yeah, yeah that yeah, feels great. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it's super crazy. It's a, it's an interesting thing. Cause yeah, like you said, there you go is the loss of loss of rhythm and, and then, the, you know, the, the, the very noticeable effects uh, therein uh, afterwards. So it's, yeah, it's, it, it's very necessary. It's very necessary in, in all aspects. Mm -hmm. So cool. Cool stuff. Is there anything else you want to add? 
No, I mean, that's great. Yeah, we we covered covered a lot of stuff in a, in a short amount of time. It was it, it's it's a fun. I feel like we can do more deep dives into each one of these these aspects, be it the gait cycle, circadian rhythm, breathing again, and and the CSF uh, and or or things like the neural activity, like all those things are individually just so deep in in their potential of of uh, exploring. It's you know it's fun just to to sort of ad lib and and bring them up and and discuss them and and find the similarities and differences between them. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, that's everything that I want to get at. I'd like to do more of that, though. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it brings importance, at least uh, to some of the stuff we were discussing today, to having good mobility, having good mm-hmm. um, posture relations uh, with gait and with movement. And, you know, th- these types of um, interrelationships we're talking to, talking about through systems, you're, you're going to see changes all over the body. It's not just going to be, oh, look, now I can overhead squat or now I can uh, reach something on the top shelf because I can get more shoulder um, extension or flexion or whatever it is. Yeah. There's a yeah. lot, there's a lot more things going on here. Totally. And hopefully with our, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get our, our, one of our next guests up and, and chat a little bit about some, some things in multi-systems and inhibition and, and all that sort of stuff to facilitate some better, better movement, better changes in, in the, in your body and, and, uh, learn a little bit more about why it matters. Ooh, baby. Why yeah. it depends. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Stephen, nice. Thank you so much, brother. Thank yeah, you to all the pleasure. listeners. Fun. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or have a topic you'd like me and Stefan to tackle, you can find us on Instagram at whyitdependspodcast. Email us at whyitdepends at gmail.com. You can also check out our website at www.thewhyitdependspodcast.com for detailed show notes with all the references and resources discussed in each and every episode. Do not hesitate to send us a message. We'd love to get to know you. Cheers and stay healthy.